There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. You're listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, where we shine a light on the shows engaging with the climate crisis from all perspectives. My name is Mark Spencer. Today, I'm in East Tamaki, an industrial section of Tamaki Makoro, Auckland, Aotearoa, New Zealand. In a couple of days, my wife, Kat, and I will be moving into our new home. But for now, we're staying in an office, in a warehouse, as one sometimes does, between permanent addresses. This means I'm feeling somewhat untethered, unmoored, and disoriented. Which is just what the guests of today's program felt during Australia's Black Summer bushfires a short couple of years ago. The book that's being discussed on this episode is one that was sent to me by the producer of this show and active climactic member, Kel Butler. I looked through it lovingly. I marveled at the many stories it contains as an anthology, and then I swiftly realized, in a rush to move to New Zealand, I had no time to read it. So to whoever in my building who picked it up, I hope you enjoy it. Animals Make Us Human is the book, and the best person to discuss books with their authors is Nicole Abadie, writer, critic, podcast host of Books, Books, Books. We've shared one of her episodes previously, one of her first, an interview with social researcher Rebecca Huntley. This is another gem that I know you, the climactic audience, will love. So now, without further ado, here's Nicole Abadie. Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm delighted to welcome two wonderful Australian writers, Leah Kaminsky and Meg Keneally, to Books, Books, Books to discuss a beautiful anthology they have jointly edited called Animals Make Us Human, published in 2020 by Penguin Random House. Let me start by introducing Leah. Dr. Leah Kaminsky is a physician and a prize-winning writer. Her first novel, The Waiting Room, won the Voss Literary Award, and her most recent novel, The Hollow Bones, won a number of prizes, including the 2019 International Book Awards in both literary fiction and historical fiction. Leah has written for many publications, including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, Griffith Review, and SBS. Leah, welcome. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks for having us. Meg Keneally worked in New York and Dublin before returning to Australia to work here as a journalist. She's co-author with her father, Tom Keneally, of the Montserrat series, Four Murder Mysteries set in colonial Australia. She has written two novels of her own, Fled and The Wreck, both historical fiction. She works in corporate affairs and has been a scuba diving instructor because she really loves the sea. Meg, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'd like to start by asking you, and I'll start with you, Leah, what made you decide to create this anthology? Well, Nicole, I was sitting in my lounge room um, trying to work on a novel in the midst of the 2019-2020 bushfires. I live in Melbourne. And, you know, watching the horrific footage that we were all watching and looking at the the devastation in human terms, but also the numbers of, of animals that you know, three getting reaching up to three billion animals, wildlife that had been killed. And I just felt this overwhelming sense of 
I need to do something, but I really don't know what. And very rarefied, you know, in, in suburban Melbourne, reading about all the bushfires in New South Wales and Victoria, but not being directly affected by them, until I opened the window to get some fresh air and in that the smoke just poured into the house. And that just, that sort of hit me very, very strongly. And I said, I have to do something. And I spoke to Lou Ryan, um, who was at Penguin at the time, and, and basically told her this idea that why don't we do a fundraiser and get together a whole bunch of fantastic writers and and raise some money for some of these incredible wildlife organisations. And Penguin embraced it. Penguin just took it on and everybody from Justin Ratcliffe, Meredith Kerner, who was sort of our den mother, um, everybody just wanted to do something. We all wanted to make some sort of difference. It was a passion project. And then once they said yes, I was landed with this, oh, my God, I've got to do this now. <laughs> and I've edited anthologies before and I know what an enormous project it was. And, and so I just thought I picked up the phone, <laughs> cold called poor Meg, knowing that she's a mermaid <laughs> and loves the sea. And I said, do you want to do this with me? Fully expecting her to say, Larry, now I'm working on a novel and blah, blah, blah. And she goes, before I even finish the sentence, she goes, yes. <laughs> So that sort of stuff, it was a labour of love from a, a lot of people. You have an enormously diverse group of contributors. You have a number of very well-known Australian writers, Geraldine Brooks, Tony Birch, Claire Wright, Bruce Pascoe, but you've also got a lot of people who are, I guess, practitioners in the field of conservation um, and ecology. You've got professors, biologists, vets, marine scientists. How did you go about deciding who you would invite to contribute? Well, because it was a pro bono project, at first I thought, gosh, we're not going to get anybody. And so I just, the last um, anthology that I edited, which is a bunch of doctor writers, um, someone said to me, oh, to make it fly, you've got to get Oliver Sacks. <laughs> I've chances. And I thought, it's called chutzpah. <laughs> I just sent an email to Oliver Sacks and he wrote back and says, yeah, sure. So everybody else ponied up. So I sort of took the same approach with this. And Meg and I and Meredith and, and yeah, sort of got together. It was actually my son that said to me, why do you just want writers? Why don't you, you know, um, broaden it out, get musicians, get, you know, get some high-profile people but also some people who are on the ground. How did you manage to pull it together living in different states? Meg, I know you're living in New South Wales and Leah, you're in Victoria and you did this during a pandemic year. Meg, do you want to talk a little bit about that, how you made it happen? Uh, sure. Well, we were... We started working on it in late January and we knew we had until May to get everything to the publisher. So it was a very, very short space of time. And as Leah said, there were so many other people we would have loved to have included, but we were just going so, so fast that we were just, you know, if we'd had heaps and heaps of time to think about it, there are a million more people we would have also approached. But everyone that we did approach was incredibly passionate and I didn't think we'd get anywhere near the people that we got because we were essentially writing to them and saying, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, would you mind giving us a piece for free? Because no one involved in this was, was, was paid, including Leah and I, and I thought the reaction we would get is, I'm terribly sorry, I'm very busy, et cetera, et cetera. But there were a lot of people who were feeling like us, I think, a little bit helpless mm. in the face of um, the environmental catastrophe that was unfolding um, uh, and were thinking, you know, what can I do? And, and who, like me, jumped at the opportunity? Because from my perspective, and I, I think a lot of our contributors might have felt this way as well, I'm not very organised. I don't have any skills that would, you know, go well with the charity. All I can do is words. And so when Leah approached me about this, I thought, well, this is something I can do. This is something I can do. And I had just seen online an image uh, that a wildlife carer had posted of her with a young um, kangaroo and a young koala, and they were both too badly burnt to survive. And she was holding them and saying, sometimes all you can do is be there for them when they go. And that just destroyed me, that image. And so to be given an opportunity to actually make a small contribution was, um, was tremendous. And in terms of 
the logistics of it, the mechanics of it. Um, I think there were about 20 or 30 texts a day, about the same number of emails, various phone calls, the occasional Zoom catch up with wine when we felt we needed it. Um, uh, and it was every, everyone was in the same boat at that stage because about six weeks after we started working on it, we were all in lockdown. Mm. So, uh, mm. and, and poor Leah, as a GP, had mm. other things to deal with as as well um so it was simply a matter of tag or it we'd pass things off to one another when we had to and we would um uh it just it was a constant stream of consciousness i think via text etc from both of us but it worked so you've said and i know this is very important that that you worked for free everybody involved in the project worked for free and that all the proceeds from the sale of the books go to two not-for-profit organizations one is australian wildlife Conservancy mm -hmm. and one is Australian Marine Conservation Society. Could you tell us a little bit about what each of those do? Maybe, um, Leah, if you start with the first, Australian Wildlife Conservancy. Yeah, well, they're a fabulous organisation um, based in out of Sydney and Perth, and they are very much on the ground. Their whole philosophy is they they um, have huge tracts of land that they want to restore back to the original and and their um, feral animal free, so cat and fox free, and they um, reintroduce species that are on the brink. So they've had incredible success with um, bilbies and, you know, a lot of animals we've never even, I've never heard of, you <laughs> know, um, they're doing a quoll reintroduction now. Uh, and all of these animals are extremely important for the kind of, I guess, the homeostasis of the land. And they work together with traditional owners, um, First Nations people, science. It's, it's all very evidence-based and hugely passionate about making a difference. Um, they, they're two of their... Um, uh, land areas were very threatened with the recent Perth fires and came off okay. Um, so I, I've always contributed to them and thought they were really incredibly um, fantastic and, and that's why I we, we sort of divvied it up, you know, land, land sky and, and sea and, and Meg got to choose sea. Yeah, Meg, can you tell us a little bit about the Australian Marine Conservation Society? Yeah, the Australian Marine Conservation Society is a very, very proactive organisation. They run campaigns broadly on issues like um, reducing the impact of commercial and recreational fishing on marine environments, um, uh, on general climate change issues, on the, 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 the really big importance of marine parks in um, protecting our environment. And, uh, you know, their, their focus is on making sure the environment is there to sustain uh, the creatures in our sea, as well as on preserving those creatures themselves, and they also run another of a, a number of specific issue-based, more local campaigns. One big big success that they were involved in was the protection of Ningaloo Reef, um, uh, which they worked with Tim Winton on. Uh, so they are very much focused on tangible, measurable, real-world um, uh, outcomes, uh, which you know, really show that they are making some headway into protecting marine environments. And they also, you know, I, mean, I think one thing that's worth noting is that I think both uh, organisations and I think most people involved in the book understand that there's an interplay between land and sea and sky as well uh, and that you can't have one of them be healthy without the rest of them being healthy so so they've got this you know they're coming at it from this is our patch that we're going to we're going to protect in order to protect the entire world so one of your goals obviously was fundraising for those organizations but your second goal was a larger one it was more in the nature of consciousness raising could you tell us a little bit about that Leah before we get into that I just wanted to say that this was such a joy for me I, I was working as a healthcare worker during lockdown and to come home to, you know, oh, which echidna do we choose, photo do we choose, and all these beautiful emails of people incredibly 
passionate about our wildlife. I've never seen anything like it. Yes. And, you know, asking them to write these, you know, thousand-word essays in, in three and a half seconds for free, I'm like, oh, my God. And nobody, nobody complained. <laughs> no one. Everyone was so wonderful. And it was like getting a different Christmas present every couple of days when the when the pieces started coming in. And Leah and I would ring each other and go, squeal, squeal, squeal. Did you see Geraldine Brooks's piece or isn't Tony Birch's piece amazing, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just like these little gems falling into our inbox on a regular basis, which was I think, like Leah, it was a joy for me. It really sustained me during what was a difficult time for everyone. And that's not to mention the beautiful photographs. How important was it to both of you that, that there be photography, that, that each creature that's talked about be photographed? That was there from the beginning. It was always going to be, um, you know, the, the, the photos and, and the um, essays. And we didn't want to... Um, box people in. We wanted pe- the, the the brief was basically write about an animal you've had an experience with, or or an environment that you love that has has been really like a, a passionate moment in your life. And so we we then asked for photos after we got the essays in. We asked for photos that reflected. Um, pieces and we we were just like kids in a candy shop honestly and for me if I can just backtrack for a moment I mean for both of us and 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 for the publishers as well it was incredibly important that let alone diversity um in in the book we wanted to it was really important for us to include First Nations people Mm. and we were very lucky with the people that said yes, we we'd sort of asked for more, but they had other commitments. But we, you know, we had Tony Birch and um, Nayuka Gori. We've got Bruce Pascoe, who's also, you know, contributed the forward. Um, yeah, Coleman. Claire Coleman, um, amazing piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony Birch. So, so those for me was sort of the the key pieces I guess that that we wanted to embroider around they were sort of our focus so let's go back to this idea of consciousness raising what in that sense did you hope to achieve with the book Meg well I think um we're both of the view that those who can be persuaded by the factual logical argument about the importance of conversation have already been persuaded um, what we wanted to do was reach beyond that and uh, um, into people's hearts by having people essentially write love letters to an animal or an environment. And, I mean, we didn't want to, people to feel that they were being lectured. We didn't want it to be too um, didactic. We just wanted to say, isn't this amazing? Look at what we have here. And, by the way, it's at risk you know, and to engage people emotionally. And we felt that, you know, we might have a better chance of um, reaching people who would not normally perhaps be engaged by this sort of content if it was at an emotional level. You see, this is this is why I needed Meg. She's not only really hot with a spreadsheet, but she just gets <laughs> it. <laughs> I sort of bumble along and blah, blah, blah. But I think, yeah, I, I agree with everything you've said. It, it is... It's engaging the emotion because you can hit people over the head and lecture them and, and you know, guilt trip them and, and all those tactics, I think. You, you want to engage the emotion. Mm. And for me, I've just posted off a whole, well, both of us are in this, we posted off a whole lot of books to local um, members of parliament in Victoria because we've got the duck shooting season upon us yet again if we can engage people at that emotional level then I think um yeah look you know people have said to me oh what's a book gonna do why didn't you just take the money and you know throw it? well we you know Penguin did donate all all the money to the very to the two organizations but yeah I think we need to Get at people's hearts. Exactly. I think Meg said it better than I ever could. Something that I thought was interesting is that there's long been a connection between writers and animal lovers, going right back to Dr Zeus, obviously, to a recent Australian example, uh, an Australian author, Laura Jean Mackay's novel, The Animals in That Country. 
she's just won the 2021 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction with that book, and that features animals who talk. And I saw that she had a PhD in literary animal studies. My question to you two is, do you think that creative people, in particular writers, have a particular affinity with or empathy towards animals? Leah? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I, look, I don't think you can put everyone in the same. I can only speak for myself, but I'm so thrilled that book won. You know, I'm, I'm rather partial to talking animals in books. I've got a talking taxidermied panda in my last novel, which caused a lot of grief for some readers. There was definitely team panda and team what the hell are you doing? Um, and there's 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 quite a lot of books that have come out. Chris Flynn's Mammoth has, has got a talking dinosaur skeleton or mammoth skeleton so I think there's there's been a bit of a movement but it's not new and and creatures have populated fiction for for you know as far back as you can remember and and even as kids you grow up with you know albeit perhaps anthropomorphized but animals talking to you um, yeah exactly <laughs> you know, I think we actually made a list at one stage I've written a little sort of um essay about about animals populating literature so I don't think we're we're reinventing the wheel but I think now it takes on a completely different it's not just a cutesy thing it's very much well hang on they're part of this world and we are part of them and you know I've the title animals make us human was the last line of my last novel that's where it came from and one of my friends said, oh, you should change the title. And I thought, oh, God, she doesn't like it. What, what shall I change it? She goes, animals make us ashamed to be human. <laughs> we are animals. Meg? Um, I don't think creative people, of course, have a monopoly on caring for animals, but I do think that um, there's something to be said for people who are used to putting themselves in other in other creatures or people's shoes so that they can write about them, having having had that experience I guess that channel's more open perhaps I don't know but of course it's not just writers who are um, uh, in fact you know many of the contributors to the book are people who have dedicated their lives to protecting and studying one particular species which is extraordinary Um, uh, but yeah uh, speaking of animals and literature I remember sobbing after reading Watership Down as a kid (laughs) Um, and one of my favourite books growing up was My Family and Other Animals by um, uh, Gerald Durrell. Um, so, you know, Leah's right. We have sort of been soaked in this since childhood. And it's, and it's wonderful when, um, you know, to feel a connection with another living creature is, I think, essential to our own sort of mental equilibrium and emotional equilibrium as well. That's a point that someone makes in one of the essays. We're going to talk about that too a little bit later. Both of you have a great love of animals. When did that begin and what animals are in your life? Leah? Um, Well, when I was growing up in suburban Melbourne, I wasn't allowed to have pets. So I went out in the back with my little ant farm kit and foraged around for the queen ant, which is probably the wrong thing to do, but but was just fascinated looking at how they were burrowing through. Um, so I called the ants my pets. Um, so then as a kind of reaction to that, um, when I had my own kids, a- anything went. <laughs> there was a menagerie. There still is. Um, so every animal known to man that was allowed, we had. Um, and then, you know, the kids growing up embraced that. I've always had, I don't know where it came from, but I've always had a love for ducks. I've always loved ducks. Um, I can't even explain why. I just, you know, it started with Jemima, Puddle Duck and reading. I think all the animals reading as I grew up. Um, but then my essay cover, covers the the. Um, you know, when I was a young uni student, I was a bit of a scaredy cat and I, you know, writing and reading has been my activism. I, I've never been one. I've been too scared to be in crowds and, you know, marching. And and then I, I came across when I was at uni this young guy called Laurie Levy who was um, who had set up um, the Coalition Against Duck Shooting 
and I sponsored a wild duck. Tell us a little bit about duck shooting. I must say it's not something that I was really aware of. I can tell you about um, Victoria in particular. When, in those days when I was at uni, which is a while ago now, you know, there would be 100,000 shooters going out during duck shooting season with no training in identifying any species. They were in camo outfits. They had uh, semi-automatic weapons and they would go out and just shoot them down. Um, that number has reduced now. I think this season there's probably about 3,000 and it's a shortened season and they're supposed to do training in duck identification. But basically what Laurie and his warriors were doing, um, and they're all very passionate, committed people, would be going out to the wetlands and confronting these people. They'd go out with, you know, they became more organised every year, but they'd go out with a crew of vets and, you know, these shooters would be just leaving you know, ducks dying in agony, shooting endangered rare species. And they were just shooting um, them for the hell of it. Well, hunting sport, it's a sport, inverted commas. Um, so I've always been horrified by that. And and Laurie and his gang, by by raising awareness, media awareness and 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 you know, speaking to politicians and that, have I think right. Um, reduce the numbers. I think engaging, you know, the, the way they've done it in a sense is really kind of guilt-tripping the families of duck shooters because duck shooters think it's normal the same way hunters think it's okay. So I guess their families have been shaming them into it. Ducks brought you to the attention of ASIO, as you discovered. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, it was when the Freedom of Information Act came in and I don't know why, I don't know why I'm motivated to do this. I thought, oh, I'll find out if I've got a file at ASIO. Here I am, like goody two shoes. I think I'd even, you know, never even smoked to join. I probably pretended <laughs> just to be cool. Um, and uh, lo and behold, I got this envelope with my file. I'm like, what the hell? And I opened it up and I was under their watch because I had sponsored a wild duck um, with, the coalition for against duck shooting, Laurie Levy's band, and was flagged as a you know potential threat to the country. I think it's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> Meg, let's talk a little bit about your essay. You've been a scuba diving instructor. So I'm guessing from that, do you have a particular connection to marine animals? And if so, how did that connection arise? I I do. I've always, always, always just been obsessed with the ocean. And as to how it arose, I'm not sure. But one of my earliest memories is um, Dad taking me down to play in rock pools and I'd be sort of just constantly paddling through these rock pools, looking at the little shells, transplanting colonies of periwinkles from one rock to the other, which in retrospect, was probably not very nice to the periwinkles. Um, but growing up in Sydney, of course, you know, I've always been exposed to the ocean um, and uh, I've always really been, you know, since I remember as a kid sort of looking out at it and thinking what's under there. And that's really been a question I've been keen to answer for myself in one way or another all my life, what's under there. It's just a... Uh, an alluring, tantalising, fascinating and somewhat scary element uh, which um, never ceases to uh, uh, to intrigue me. And is that uh, what prompted you to take up scuba diving? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. I, I, um, I'm also, you know, very keenly aware of how lucky I am to be among the first generations of, um, of humans who are capable of answering that question, what's down there, you know, um, uh, and uh, there, it is. This isn't why I took it up, but one of the one of the things I've noticed a lot since I've been diving is uh, you assume that fish are sort of these emotionless, and maybe they are. We don't know. Um, just sort of eating and breeding machines, but I feel a connection whenever I look in one of look in a fish's eye. Um, uh, and particularly in the eye of the Eastern Blue Groper, who I wrote about for uh, 
for this uh, uh, for this book. And anyone who's met an eastern blue groper knows fish have heaps of personality. Uh, and uh, I dive a lot at Shelley Beach, which is a marine reserve. And we were I was talking earlier about the importance of marine reserves. When I was an instructor, students would uh, surface after a dive and say, what was that massive fish that looked just like a flathead? And what they'd actually seen was a flathead that hadn't been fished and had been allowed to grow to its uh, its full size, which, and that right there to me illustrates the importance of marine parks. But eastern blue gropers will come up to you, they'll examine you, um, they are probably thinking you look a bit funny, uh, but then when you start swimming off, they will swim along beside you. If you look under a rock, they're there right beside you. If you write something on your slate, they're looking over your shoulder saying, oh, what are you writing? If you try to take a photo of another species, just before you push the button, uh, this blue head will emerge into the into the screen. They are, they are photo bombers par excellence. Um, and... Uh, it just always struck me, the shock I felt for the first time when I saw one and looked into its eyes and there was something more than a feeding and eating machine looking back at me. And that yeah. really rocked me to the core in, in the best possible way. So that's why I decided to write about them for this book. And I love the way you do that and you make that point about the person, you know, that they have their very distinct personalities. I wanted to ask you now about anthropomorphism. So you have referred to that in your essay and you say at one stage that you try not to anthropomorphise marine animals because that seems arrogant mm. to you. And I was interested, Bruce Pascoe, in his essay, says he doesn't want to demean the behaviour of animals by comparing it to ours. Can you tell us a little bit about, for those that aren't familiar with the term, about anthropomorphism? Uh, sure, it means uh, ascribing human characteristics to an animal. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I say in the piece, it's hard not to with blue gropers because they seem friendly, but I'm pretty sure they don't want to be your friend. They're inquisitive. I think inquisitive is a better word for what they are. But we had this debate in an event recently with um, Ewan Ritchie, who's one of the scientists who contributed to the book, and he feels that anthropomorphization can actually serve a purpose in making people care more about animals if they recognise something of themselves in there. Um, uh, it's an interesting debate, and I can see his point. For me, though, I really, really try just to let them exist on their own terms without me putting a layer of my own perceptions over them, but I can see where he's coming from as well. You write, um, Meg, that when you swim with a blue groper, you feel a sense of guilt and yearning. Yes. Can you explain a little bit about why you feel like that? Well, um, a couple of reasons. Uh, sometimes when you've had a blue groper swimming with you for a while, um, you're ascending along the anchor chain and the blue groper is circling below and, you know, while I say I try not to anthropomorphize, I don't always succeed. And sometimes they look as though they're saying, I thought we were friends. Where are you going? <laughs> um, uh, I feel guilt about that, but I also feel terrible guilt about what we've done to their, to their environment um, and what we've done to, uh, to their home. And the yearning comes from I just somehow can't help seeing them as fellow travellers. And I feel better when they're with me underwater, when they're swimming along with me, and particularly in situations where you've got low visibility, which can feel a little bit daunting, or you've got strong currents or whatever, and this blue creature is right there with you, um, probably hoping you'll give it an urchin or something, but uh, but I do draw comfort from them. So my... my um, uh, my commitment not to anthrop anthropomorphise them isn't going very well. <laughs> Leah, what about you? What what do you, what are your feelings about anthropomorphism? Is it a is it a way to make humans engage and empathise more with animals, or should we try to avoid it? It's a really interesting question. I don't think I have an answer. I have lots more questions than I have answers about it because I feel very conflicted about it. I think you know we've been doing it for thousands of years, and if you look at kids literature you know I remember submitting a um a children's picture book um 
manuscript to an old agent many, many years ago. And she goes, oh, I'm just so sick of talking animals. And I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> You've just destroyed the whole of children's literature. And um, But I, I understand where she was coming from. So I think... Um, I think we have to be careful with it, but it's also, in a way, the way we've been engaging young children and people into caring about animals. But in the same breath, you know, you, this is slightly off topic, but, you know, we'll take our kids to a petting zoo and they'll, you know, cuddle the chickens and pat the calves and, oh, aren't they cute and aren't they beautiful and I love them, blah, blah, and then we'll go down and get them some chicken nuggets and, you know, for, for lunch. And there's that, that's, there's that complete disconnect mm. between what we use animals for, you know, the belts that we tighten our trousers with, the shoes, you know, nameless, the, the glue in the nail polish, whatever, I don't know, um, and, and our love for animals. So for me, that's very, you know, that's a more important question than anthropomorphising them. There's two really serious topics that various contributors talk about here. One is animal extinction. I guess they're obviously connected. One's animal extinction and one is the impact of climate change on our wildlife. Just talking, first of all, about animal extinction, I was horrified to learn that Australia has the record for the worst mammal extinction on the planet. Um, since European set settlement, we've lost more than 30 species and we have 50 species at risk of extinction in the coming decade. Why is that? Can you explain to our listeners why we have such a poor record and why there has been such massive scale of animal extinction, at least in relation to mammals? Meg? I suppose there are a whole range of factors and I'm not a conservation expert, but obviously our climate the climate change induced bushfires, which killed you know, so many billions of animals were a big part of that. But even before that, I think there's perhaps been less thought than they could have been put into land clearing, put into where we build our homes. Um, there is a, uh, there's a little creek near me, which I love to walk along, uh, which is home to all sorts of species of birds and insects and and so forth. Um, we've got a tunnel being built nearby and that creek is going to be drained and will no longer exist. And surely you know, we're smart enough as a species to figure out ways around that. So I think that perhaps there hasn't been the motivation in the past among planners, among builders and so forth, to put the thought into how do we, you know, meet our needs as humans, uh, but still make sure that these areas are preserved. Um, uh, introduced animals, of course, is another another big part of it. One of the other factors I saw referred to was changes in fire management, that the Indigenous people who've occupied our land for so many thousands of years knew how to manage fires and how to deal with the land properly. And then a point was made that it's really only been in the last, whatever it is, two and a half centuries since European settlement, that those traditional practices have been disturbed and changes have been made to fire management, which have been detrimental to wildlife. Leah, is that something you talk to yeah absolutely I mean I wish we had one of our conservationists or First Nations people here talking with us because I think they articulate it way better than we do but I think you know there's it's multifactorial climate change is an obvious sort of go-to it's it's greed combination of greed denial ignorance or don't care she'll be right mate um so in Australia in particular it's, it's biodiversity and it's it's ecosystems are fragile and and very interlinked and so it's it's a bit of a kind of a butterfly a ripple effect you, you know you affect you you change something here you know that homeostasis is gone um and it's it's embarrassing that we have such an abundance of richness in terms of mammals and and insects across the board and we have not managed them well and so i think you know, one of my daughters is a biodiversity officer and she works a lot with, thank God, they work a lot with First Nations councils and, and, and experts. And I think that with the younger generation, that conversation starting to shift in terms of land management. Um, I think, you know, there's a major, a lot of the reason from what, I, you know, I've heard and read is, is habitat loss. 
So that's why for me, AWC was really important to contribute to because they're addressing all those issues across the board. Mm. There's a lot of talk in a number of the essays of the, the, the things that you're touching on, climate change and its impact on our wildlife. And a number of contributors refer to feelings of grief. Now, seems to me there's been quite a lot written over the last few years about something called eco-grief or ecological grief. And that is grief that is suffered by those who are working in the field of climate change, who are dealing with its impacts on a day-to-day -day basis, who are reading about it, researching it, studying it. I was wondering if either of you experienced that sense of grief that the contributors and scientists who work in the field have talked about. And if you do, how do you manage it? Me. Definitely. Um, and, it, it, you know, for example, that, that uh, post that I um, uh, showed you earlier, and uh, I live in the north of Sydney. We had bushfires around here in October and walking along through that blasted landscape, which I'd walked through so many times before, not recognising where I was, and then I'd come across a landmark and I'd say, no, no, I can't be here. This can't be where I am. It does. It shouldn't look like this. And just that complete unreality of seeing a bushfire altered landscape that's just completely changed. It's almost like go, you know, living in a thriving town and then going forward in time, five hundred years, and visiting its ruin. It's very surreal and it's very. Um, uh, uh, it, it is. It is grief inducing. Um, and I think in terms of managing it, I mean, that's one of the reasons I was so, so grateful to be involved in this project, because the only way I've found that I can make a dent in it is by actually doing something. Uh, it stops you feeling helpless. It stops you feeling um, as though you're just careening along towards ruin and there's nothing that you can do about it. Um, and uh, I was having this conversation with uh, one of our contributors, Curly Saunders, and she said, you know, when people say to me, I don't know what I can do, I want to do something, she suggests that they knit pouches for orphan joeys. Um, and there are all sorts of things that, that people can do, and I think that that is probably the best way to, to manage mm. that feeling. Leah? Mm. Yeah, and I'd forgotten Curly when we spoke about our First Nations contributors. She's fabulous. Um, I guess, you know, John Wojnarski is one of our contributors and he's an eminent scientist and he's involved also with AWC. Um, he, when I spoke to him, I said, how do you deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis? And he said, you know, we cry a lot. <laughs> he's a scientist. And David Lindenmeyer in his essay also about sugar gliders uh, talks about the you know how when you peel off that the, the kind of rational scientist in you there is a lot of grief underlying it um I think that was one of the driving forces and the motivation for me to approach Megan and to put this anthology together is is the grief can be overwhelming and you know I can't squish a mosquito if the truth be told I'm ridiculous but um, <laughs> um I think it's more looking forward to my children's generation, future generations. I feel an enormous grief. You know, we've had it kind of lucky or we've not been aware um, in our youth of, of the, the level of degradation of this planet. You know, I remember as a child thinking, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> The, the planet's huge and, and and when someone would say, oh, you have to pay for something, I'd say, oh, yeah, that's a bit like, you know, thinking we're going to have to pay for water and air. And here we are, like, you know. <laughs> um, so I think it's looking forward and that grief for me, instead of channeling it into a sense of impotence, it's, it's, it's called solastalgia. I think that's the word for it, environmental grief. I channel it more into absolute fury and rage and anger I think that motivates me more than anything you know I'll walk down to the local park and there'll be dogs off leash when they're not meant to and we've got eight baby pacific ducks floating around and then the next day there'll be two and I'm like 
I just, I start yelling at people. <laughs> I've changed my approach lately. I've said, oh, do you know that there are $200 fines for having a dog off leash? I saw a guy across lines. I saw an officer across. They're, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they put their dog on the leash. <laughs> Whereas if I just sort of spout at them with my anger and they just yell back at me. Um, I think it's, it's a matter of figuring out how to channel that mixture of grief and anger. For me, this book was was just you know, a wonderful and powerful way of doing it. I know it's a drop in the in the literary ocean, but um, see, I, what made me feel fantastic was was sharing that passion with so many other people. You know, there were sixty plus contributors from all walks of life, um, and and the publishers were. You know, everybody was just. It was a a, a beacon, wasn't it, Meg? It really so, was. That's what I know. You know, I do volunteer and I go and help feed baby bats and I do my own thing. But I guess for me, books books are so important as a way of communicating a message. I want to end by talking a little bit about this idea of the emotional connection between humans and animals and why you thought it was so important, as you, you explained a bit earlier, it was to engage people's emotions. You've made the point, you say at the beginning, that you believe that those who have an emotional connection to our wildlife are more likely to protect it. And that's the reason that you chose people who had a strong bond to particular animals to write about them. I just thought we'd finish by talking about some of the emotions that your contributors have written about. Let's start with awe and wonder. Um, the writer Sonia Urchard, Orchard, I'm sorry, refers in her essay to research that suggests that this experience this experience of feeling awe and humbled by being in the presence of something vast, in her case she's talking about a whale shark or a mink whale, is vital to human well-being. I know Julie Baird has touched on that as well in her book, Phosphorescence, and I wondered, starting with you, Leah, as a doctor, if that's something that you know very much about or would like to talk about, these studies that indicate that that sense of awe and wonder is actually really important on, on a purely... Um, I suppose that's a more pragmatic way of looking at it, is that, that feeling awe and wonder is actually good for us as humans. I don't think I have any expert knowledge in the field, but if I can just sort of bring it down to grassroots, even during lockdown, you know, the number of my patients that would, and I experienced it myself, it was actually my daughter, Ella Lerfler, who's, you know, a bit of nepotism, one of the contributors. Um, we'd go for walks together and normally we just walk and, you know, gossip and bitch and yada 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 and this time she sort of I guess it's a kind of a mindfulness she would point out she's she's a conservationist so she'd point out things that I hadn't noticed before small things a feather in a tree a berry um we started birding together so that beautiful sense of awe in a suburban area in the and we're very lucky in a lot of suburban you know, um, settings or urban settings that we do have nature within that. Um, that that for me was was quite uplifting, and made me notice nature in our everyday lives. You know, sitting out in the backyard and doing the backyard bird count. Um, I never noticed we had pardalotes in the garden. <laughs> they called the headache bird, and I'd heard their tweet for years and never identified that that's what they were. So I, I kind of brought that into the clinic and, and started talking to my patients who were quite depressed about lockdown, you know, about going on walks but noticing things, noticing nature mm. in your walks mm. and starting to take photographs or draw or, or write about it or, or just have some, or not even any career, just doing it for the sake of doing it. Mm. And that I found that very, very powerful. So I can't quote you any studies, but I think we we go about our sort of quotidian daily life ignoring the awe that's right under, the magic that's under our noses, whether that's looking, you know, and I'm coming back to my childhood, going out and looking at the ants and looking at them carrying their little lava. And I, I was just engrossed. So I think I've come full circle. Meg, can I ask you about another um, or other emotions that people write about? And that's empathy and compassion. And in particular, there's a lovely essay by Sean Tan where he talks about rescuing a small bird that fell from a tree in front of him when he was a little boy, he was 11, and nursing it back to health. And he talks about how even as an 11-year-old boy that 
he saw that bird injured on the ground in front of him and he had to he had to pick it up and that 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 really made him feel empathy and compassion for another creature and I'm wondering is that what you're getting at both of you in your title animals make us human and and is it that idea that animals really bring out the best in us I, I think that's a big part of it and it, it it sort of comes from the same places that awe and wonder I think in both cases those feelings remind us that we are part of something bigger that we're not alone, that we are part of a bigger world uh, and that we are humbled before the vastness in front of us and the wonder in front of us, but also it means that we are part of it, we're stitched into it. Um, and I I can absolutely, I, I love Sean's piece and he's done an incredible painting, by the way, uh, to, go, to go with his story about Pippi Eugene, the red wattle bird that he rescued. And there's a pride there that he was able to do something for another creature. And I think we often forget that the times when we feel best are often the times when we are being useful, when we are supporting someone or something else beyond ourselves, um, uh, when we're part of something bigger. And I think both the idea of being humbled by the wonder in front of us and the idea of having compassion and fellow feeling with the creatures we share the planet with are, are both very, very important parts of that reality. That seems like a, a great place to wind up, much as I'd like to continue talking to you two indefinitely But I'd like to congratulate you both on a really beautiful collection, beautifully illustrated with fabulous photographs and I love your description at the begin beginning of each essay being a love letter to a particular animal. I think that's very appropriate as you read this wonderful anthology. That is how it feels. So I congratulate both of you. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for consciousness raising and making all of us think more deeply about these really important issues. Lovely to have you. Thank you so much, Leah and Meg. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.